Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash recommend today. You could spend the weekend doing the same old whatever, or you could conquer the weekend in the all-new Hyundai Santa Fe. Visit HyundaiUSA.com for more details. Hyundai, there's joy in every journey. And Bernard Fricker's favorite podcast, The Soccer We Trust. He was the president of U.S. Soccer when we were awarded the 1994 Men's World Cup, so it's a pretty big deal. Anyway, I'm Trash Can, Jimmy Conrad, Cream Cheese, Conradino, Jim Conrad. I'm all over the place with my introduction. Alongside only Hollywood Heath Pierce, because Charlie Chuck Wagon Davies thought going to Disney World with his family was more important than hanging out with us and our amazing community, Heath. I'm not sure that's forgivable, especially since we're going to be doing our year in review around the U.S. Men's National Team. Yeah, you're good. Keith, what are your thoughts on that? What are your thoughts? Yeah, I mean, uh, I, I... I like the awkward I, pause, though. That was like a dramatic awkward pause. Oh, I didn't hear if you finished the question. No, that was it. I oh. cut it short. Yeah, <laughs> no, I, they, no, like, I'm, I'm, I'm excited to uh, get towards the tail end of the year, kind of have a year in review. I mean, we've been humming away at this just as, like, a, a starting point, right? For those of you that, that, that have been with us since the USMNT hour on, on the Kegel Also show, just to be able to now... Uh, get to this point towards the end of the year. I know it's not really like about a year in review of our show, but it's more of like a year in review of the national team. But that starting point of, 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 of CBS Sports giving you and I an opportunity to talk about something that we are very passionate about and then seeing the response of people looking for a community to be part of, talking about um, the world of soccer, more importantly, through the lens of, of a national team fan or a national team player uh, and fan um perspective is has been a, a really fun journey so to get to this the end of this year having to get a chance to get through a world cup to get through a uh, nation's league to get through a gold cup to, to sort of see where this team is going i'm really excited about it to look back and have some criticisms but at the same time you know for this community that we're building uh, obviously you and i i don't know if you had a chance to read the email jimmy but some incredible numbers that we had during this world cup um on the show and 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 some great subscription growth and great numbers in terms of our live reactions and previews and just the general interest in the sport just makes me happy and I'm excited about uh, this episode I'm excited to do this thing moving forward yeah same same so you didn't answer my question though which is Charlie Davies unforgivable that he did oh <laughs> yeah not well, here. unforgivable so, like what is he doing you said all these special things about how great our show yeah. is and all this stuff and it you know it's all three of us and our wonderful producers that are helping us grow this as well and he decided to like go pay fifteen dollars for a coke, you yeah. know, at, at and sit in standing are, lines for two Jimmy, hours. Jimmy, where where are you, by the way? Are you home? No, I'm not home. Okay. So so I I, I had a 32 hour travel day back from Doha. It was yeah, insane. Do. Yeah. Yeah. Well, it my flight got canceled. I landed in in Boston. I had to do a layover, and and I landed in Boston, and I land. They're like, oh, your flight got canceled from Boston to San Francisco. No I was way. like, oh, okay, cool, sweet. So I ended up to rebook. It was a nightmare, but I got home, and then. My wife, my beautiful wife, had planned a trip to do a little, you know, bed and breakfast, rest yeah, and relaxation a couple of days. Yeah. yeah, a little staycation. So we're, we're not too far. We're uh, up in the Napa area 
doing okay. that. But I couldn't miss the show. The show must go on, which is why yeah. it's even more forgiv- unforgivable that Charlie Davies isn't here. All right, let's take a look, though, and talk about this U.S. men's national team year. I went and crunched some numbers, as mm-hmm. one does. Mm-hmm. and uh, Nerd, yeah. Yeah, we had 16 games. Yeah. Okay? 16 games in this calendar year. Okay. And how many wins do you think we had, Heath, of 16? Um, just so I don't go back and count all of them, I'm going to say seven. Ooh, close. We had six. We had six wins, six draws and four losses. We had 21 goals for over those 16 games, 12 against. Now we only had four goals in our last seven when things got a little tighter Yeah, and, uh, seven given up in the last seven. So. That's interesting for me, that when the games got a little bit more difficult, uh, the margins weren't necessarily going our way. And that's when you have to take out the big 5-0 win versus Granada Mm -hmm. and the 5-1 ass-kicking to Panama, though that helped us get qualified for the World Cup. That has to be taken into consideration. But if you take away those 10 goals, kind of squeaky bum time in a lot of the other ones. But but again, necessary experiences, right? And this is the thing that when when we look at 2026 and everybody's thinking about how we're going to get to the level we want to get to challenge and reach a, I would say, a semifinal of the World Cup. And granted, where we finished uh, in terms of our performance, I say our performance against England has me closer to thinking that if we played that way all the way through, for large parts, we could reach a semifinal. Now the rest, who knows? But like, not the way that we played against the Netherlands in the game that we did. Um, But the point being... Squeaky bum time is really important, but we're going to have some games of consequence, right? We're talking about Copa America. We'll have Gold Cup. We'll have Nations League. We'll have those types of things, official competitions that are really, really important. But we don't have qualifying. Now, on one hand, I love that because we lost a lot of time to develop because qualifying is about qualifying. It's not about getting better as a national team. It's not about trying things, right? We never practiced with a two-striker system. We didn't really go with a back three. We didn't really tinker or try. We didn't get any Gio Reynas at the 10. We didn't get get any of the things. We didn't get get, uh, Timo Way at the nine. We didn't get any of that stuff, right? Because we had something way more important at hand, and that's qualify for the World Cup. Without that, that gives us the ability to tinker, but at the same time, you lose a little bit of that squeaky bum time, right? Um, that, that I think helps and shapes and molds you in a lot of ways uh, for better or for worse. So I think it's a, an interesting trade-off for the next two and a half years or three and a half years to the next World Cup uh, that I hope that we, we, we take these official competitions uh, seriously so that we can get uh, a little, little, little extra clinching going on um, during big moments <laughs> just to see what our team and, is made and, of. And in, fun, in some ways, to your point, getting, uh, uncomfortable, getting comfortable with being uncomfortable. And, and Christopher makes a good point here. He says... We reset and restarted from a failure. And he's referencing the 2018 World Cup failure where we didn't qualify. Mm -hmm. And that was disappointing. We had to move on from that particular group of players. And we had to have new ones emerge, even though Tim Ream was one of the few holdovers, along with DeAndre Edlin, that ended up making the 2016 or 22 team. Excuse me. Mm -hmm. So my big takeaway, let's get into big takeaways. And I'll go first. And we can kind of go back and forth here. Okay. My first big takeaway is that we got the job done. Yep. We, We qualified. No matter how we did it, no matter how it looked, we needed to get back into the big dance. We got a ticket to the big dance, and that's important. And then it's a whole separate way of attacking it and approaching it from there. So when we got into the group stage, and what I learned by being in the World Cup, and we know this, but but just to say it again, when you play in the group stage, it's a completely different tournament at the World Cup than when you get into the knockout rounds. 
And and I thought we did really well to get out of the group stage. We managed the group stage really well. We did. That's a great way of saying it. And now there's that doesn't mean we were perfect. No, there are in, plenty of in game management of the group stage, maybe not different, the best. different, but the way yeah. we started most of the games, pretty yeah. good. Yeah. And I think what I'll feel about this world cup is that when I see our players, I, they wanted to, they wanted to share more of this story. They wanted the story to continue mm-hmm. and it ended. The Netherlands came in and slapped us around a little bit and said, Hey, you're not ready yet. And okay. But I want that hunger to continue. I want that hunger of a missed opportunity to remain in our bellies so that continues to fire us up because we don't have a qualifying to kind of sharpen our teeth, which I do think it helps sharpen your teeth and get your guys used to each other in high-pressure situations. The group's going to be – there's going to be a turnover in the group. Somebody's going to be hurt, mm-hmm. you know, at some point. Maybe somebody's significant. I hope not. You know, we saw Croatia have the benefit of having Brosovic and Kovacic and, and Modric for two consecutive World Cups. When, yeah. when you look at those guys' age and, and all the mileage on their bodies, that's pretty remarkable that both all three of those guys were healthy. Now, if we have MMA again going for 26, I'll be absolutely buzzing. And that was another one. I mean, think how much farther along. This is my big takeaway, too. Our, our players are going to be in three and a half years, including MMA, who are getting linked to bigger clubs. I mean, those guys mm-hmm. are going to be – we think they're beasts now. Imagine what they're going to look like in three and a half years. So, so those are kind of my – my two of my takeaways but what do you got for us well, Heath? Look, here's my question for you on that is would you this is a little bit of a would you rather um now reflecting on this last world Ooh, cup i like right, those where uh-huh. you see a croatia side well past their prime by and large right in terms of um stereotypical classic player prime prime especially at the international level right you don't get a lot of 32 and overs at the international level generally, right? The game's getting younger. Players are starting younger. They're ending younger. They're all of that sort of stuff. So would you rather have this team, a team like a Croatia that was mature, right? Experienced, right? You can say that that's a very thin line between experienced and over the hill and old, right? We use it, we use it in the same context. Experienced when things are going well and they don't have it. They're too old uh, when they're not, <laughs> when things aren't going well. Or... A team that has just continued to build, and you're talking about your 28s to like, I guess what I'm saying is 2026 or 2030 with this group has the most uh, potential impact. That's given a great that question. This is a very young team, you know, and I know we're all focused on 26 because it's, it's domestic. Well, most of it's domestic. Um, you know, you, 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 traditional player primes, uh, the quality of the player. But when you think about that, if six of these guys played two more World Cups, six or seven of the core group. And then you've got this next generation that's seven years out from now. There's still something to be said about that, I think. And when you look at Croatia or you look at others that were like highly mature teams that weren't like full of spring chickens, you know? No, no, no. I think you're pretty spot on. I think Japan's another team that they had a bunch of old guys they were relying on to get them into the round of 16 and obviously mm-hmm. trying to have success. A lot of these guys were on their third world cup, if I'm not mistaken. And, and um, there's probably an argument to be made that when they started to trust some of the younger players, they looked a little bit more vibrant and same with Mexico, right? They, the Tata Martino elected to go with like the oldest team of all time against Argentina. It didn't yeah. look good. And then when he had to have some desperation in the third game, he laid it all out there, played the young guys and they, they showed up. Well, Greg, and they had Greg Berhalter was anti old players until the world cup, right? He was very much, on a purpose to, to get players minutes. And again, it's not the national team's job to develop these players. These players earn their minutes, but he was giving crucial time to players that could develop or go. And then came world cup time. And we saw him default to some more um, safe options that he trusted and had a little bit more match experience like a Tim Ream, for example, which 
shocked all of us, not by the time they made the roster, but leading up to it, um, mm-hmm. you know, pretty, pretty shocking. But obviously some teams elected an entire team of that, uh, maybe because right. they didn't have the players or because that's where they felt their best chance of getting results were. No, nah, that's a great question. Ultimately, it's hard to know because you don't know which one of our young prospects is going to step up and start to be the guy, whether... You know, they maybe they they blow up at 21, maybe they blow up at 25. It's 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 hard to say right now. I think they're at least the way I see it is that there should be an upward trajectory from this point forward. We're not going to win every World Cup going forward, but I, can we be competitive in every World Cup? Because there are going to be some World Cups where we put a lot of time and, and obviously emotion and everything else, money into it, and it's just not going to work out that way. Where the mar- the margins just aren't going to go our way. We're going to run into a hot yeah. goalkeeper that stands on his head, and that's just the game. Hey, but, Jimmy, but, yeah. here, here, here's a follow-up. Actually, this is a, a decent little like sort of sub subcategory or sub-conversation of, of what we're talking about right now from, from Kai718. And um, he says, I don't know if GGG was anti-old players. Our young players just happen to be significantly better than the older group. Do you agree with that? Because we're talking about two and a half years ago, right? And I don't know if I don't know if you could automatically call Tyler Adams better than than um, than uh, Michael Bradley, you know, when they when these players started getting significant minutes in the national team. And you so, and I know what it feels like when people get a yeah. good run of games because uh, we sure. experienced it with our group. <laughs> but um, but were they that significantly better or was there that much significantly higher upside that it was worth putting the time into? Um, because I don't think those players. Well, I, I mean, Sebastian Lejet got the most minutes of, of everyone that time. There's some rolled on and. A lot of Morris and 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 um, and what's his name? That's that, Ariola. Ariola. Oh, no, what's his name? Ariola as well. But um, you know, striker uh, Zardes. Um, mm-hmm. But there was also there was also just kind of a new opportunity for young players to come through um, that I think we just forgot about a lot of. People you know, we well, got, you know. this is this is a layered question, I think, and and maybe has a layered answer because when I think about that group of older players, they're also. You know, they, they need they need to take a shower. <laughs> they need to take a shower of kind of the stink of not qualifying for the 2018 yeah, World for Cup. Sure. They're tainted with that. And yeah. and there's a part of wanting to just get past that. You just let, let's just rely on young guys now. Let's let's start to build towards the future as opposed to relying on the past. And I think that was probably why there was more of an impetus to Go with the younger players, and obviously the younger players have showed some incredible promise. And and uh, oh, you got to give credit. I mean, then people that are very anti-Greg got to give Greg some credit for making that decision because there was a lot of guys that were very upset. Who's? I mean, look, I, I agree. Yeah, people need not, to pay yeah. the price for failing, but they're in sure. their national team careers, right? Guys who had hundred plusers um, that were still in their late twenties, early thirties um, were were just sort of retired at that point. So um, yeah, no, he made some tough decisions, and and uh, even towards the end of this cycle, he made some tough decisions with the World Cup roster. He made some tough decisions during the tournament itself. And, and I don't think he shies away from that. And, and for that, I think we have to respect it. Whether you agree with the decisions, that's something different. But you have to respect the fact that he at least had the courage to say, you know, put my flag in the ground. This is how I want to play. These are the players I'm going to go with. And I think all things considered, we had we qualified for a World Cup. We got out of the group stage. And I, it's, I guess what's a, the most infuriating at this point is that we did so well to put ourselves in these yeah. positions, and then we lacked a little bit of that savvy, both as a manager and as players, to really adapt yeah. as well, I thought. Because there's still a part of me that if you're on the field, Heath, we've played enough. We've played so many games that if you can sense that a team is taking something away, 
it's easier to see it from the outside. So it's ultimately on the manager to be able to solve this problem and, and to right. be able to be like, hey, guys, let's just do these two or three things. And that should unlock a couple things. We should get some more opportunities. But also on the players a little bit to have that in-game management of being able to adapt in real time. And I don't think that's always on the manager. Ultimately, the end is on the manager, the, the overall scheme of that. You want to put your players in position where they're ready for it, right? The, the magic's mm-hmm. in the preparation for me. So if that was a possibility, and this is going to get into my, some of my regrets. So we're going to have big takeaways. We're going to have regrets. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to tiptoe into the regret waters right now. But when I think about as a coach, you want to make sure that your players are as prepared as possible for any eventuality so that when they go out there, they're confident that they know how to adapt. And then they're all thinking the same thing at the same time. Like, oh, mm-hmm. shit, that's not on. Cool. We know what to do. And that lacked a little bit. And and that just, that that's one of my regrets that we didn't we didn't have that in our not consistently. Did it happen sometimes? Most likely. But it didn't yeah. feel like when we needed it the most. We had that. So so anyway, I. I yeah, I'm going off on a tangent. But, no, no, but, but I, I would uh, you know, just to feed on that, uh, just to just to keep stay on that 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 conversation with re- in the regret realm. When I looked at how some teams went out of the tournament, mm-hmm. fighting to the death, mm-hmm. grinding it out, feeling like they had a, a glimmer of hope going into the closing moments. You know, this belief, this kind of winning, like some of the cliches of like like win and lose with class type thing, right? Versus the flat performance. There was very few. I mean, having said that, France was worse against Argentina the first 60 minutes than the U.S. were against Netherlands, right? They were completely flat. And this is a team of mm-hmm. world-class superstars. But they had some X factors and people. And, and again, we talked about this on the last show when, when you weren't here, Jimmy. Um, and we had Michael Hood step in and, and, and kind of co-host with me as, as one of our guests. We talked about just sort of uh, Christian Pulisic recently on Tim Ream's podcast was talking about um, how he wants to be more clinical as something that, that like the thing that he's working on most is to be more clinical, to finish his chances, to be better at that, whether it's on the dribble, the last, the final ball, the final dribble, the final shot, all those types of things. And I actually think that's a decent assessment of, of, of what I think our best players lack at a consistent level that every other national team that does something truly significant, right? Or any club team does something truly significant generally has to have somebody that has a high percentage of that X factor. We've talked about Weston McKinney. We've talked about Christian sure. Pulisic and others like that at times. But, you know, and then he went, went back to talk about how the game would have been different if he finished his chance at the start of the game and was open about that. But when you look at that, that long of a period, you know, uh, France ultimately were able to come back off of moments of brilliance after sleeping for 60 minutes. Mm-hmm. Whereas the U.S., I just left feeling like, man, all this progress, and, and I feel like we, 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 we've left the tournament with the wrong perception of what we're actually capable of. So I, I'm glad that he went on that show and and that uh, I listened to that episode and and um, I like to listen to Tim Ream's podcast. He's he's nice and sensible and has nice takes. But I would say that uh, with regard to Christian and being clinical, I, I'm going to bring up the stat I had before in the last seven games, which included the four World Cup ones, our two friendlies in September, and our one-one El Salvador game in El Salvador Nations League. We scored four goals, and so yes, clinical isn't just about him; it's about the whole team. And also, I would say, when he's talking about this, the first thing I think of is it has nothing to do with your technical ability. Nothing. It's, it's all mental. Right. So, so how do you develop that? I mean, yes, you, you can gain a lot of confidence from 
you can gain a lot of confidence from repetition. And we see Chuck Wagon here. And the yeah, nice Chuck. to see you, Chuck Thanks Wagon. For, Chuck Wagon well, taking time out of his day to be good, in the comments. Uh, good thing we said all the bad things about him before he got on yeah. here. Had me worried, but uh, you know, must have been must have been his uh, his brother uh, that jumped in and uh, saw us uh, going off on Charlie. But here he is. He shows up in Look the comments. He's, he shows up in the comments. Look at that headshot too. It's just so he's so handsome, Charlie Chuck okay. Wagon Davis. But but ultimately, in terms of being clinical, when I hear that though, Keith, do you agree? I mean, yes. I derived a great deal of confidence from from doing the same things over and over. That repetition is incredibly important. When you hit up a ball against the wall, when you're dribbling through cones, like getting used to those motions so that your body just does it without thinking in a game when that moment does come and you know how to react in your body, your muscle memory, everything's working together. That's what the repetition's for. But I think at some point, it's just a, I'm going to finish this shit right now because I'm in a good position to do it, right? It's having that yeah. confidence in that key moment. And I don't think that's an easy thing to gain and and what's interesting for him is that he's already shown that he can score goals in big games yeah. but how does he do that consistently is something that we haven't seen from him we have at times when he first joined Chelsea from Borussia Dortmund I'll use Pulisic as an example here the guy was on fire like, right. so so it's like tapping into that version he actually came out and said in the same interview right that Frank Lampard was the, the coach that got him the most yeah and it's not a big surprise that he actually produced his best numbers under Frank Lampard. And so you wonder, how do, how, do, how do we do that? How do we replicate that? Or how can he replicate that himself so he doesn't need that, that external Frank Lampard-esque voice that's pushing him on? And, and yeah. that is going to be the big challenge. That doesn't necessarily, it's not just him. It's our, our whole goddamn team. Yeah, that, but... That but, lacks, but lacks that, that clinical. Because listen, if Weston McKinney scores... So here's one of my big regrets. Weston McKinney not scoring his chance against England. I think if we score that goal, we go on to win. I don't necessarily agree with Christian that if we score early against Netherlands... They were so locked in on us. I think they would have yeah. found a way to to beat us in that game. Yeah, he, but, I mean, he but, feels but the, the game would have been different at least is what was It would have been different, so. but yeah. we beat England. Then we go top of the group. I think we get past Senegal and then we'll end up playing France in the quarterfinals. It still matches our best ever finish. Whatever happens in that game happens. We're definitely yeah. playing with house money at that point. But but that would be the big regret that we weren't as clinical. So I'm glad he right. brought that up. And so what do you yeah. think though on the mental side I mean, of it? How do you, how do you develop that? I mean, the I, hard I mean, part I, is that, like, I, I mean, this is the difference, Jimmy. Is like you and I, we need we need a coach that believes in us. We need a right mentality. We need a few things that we can control, and probably things that we can't control for us to probably to be the best player that we can be, right? Like most mm -hmm. uh, high level pros. But then you get into the the world class, the killers, right? These these are these are guys that are self motivated. These are your ones that are. That, that you're literally talking about a world, you're talking about an own, their own category. And I think that's the player we've got the potential of uh, on an, in a number of positions, actually, uh, that shouldn't need, an, like you said, an external motivator like a Frank Lampard to get the most out of them, right? Of course, we've seen every top player in the world struggle when they go from, like Thierry Henry took a while at Barcelona and, you know, all, like these are world-class players. But what I'm saying is consistently now, he's gone through a couple of managers, He's going to have to get to a point, like you said, where he's got the mentality to be a killer, period. You know, I'm a killer. Whether I'm liked, disliked, but on the field, I get my chances. I believe I'm going to finish. And if I don't, guess what? Next time I get the ball, I'm going to go do the same thing again. Um, and that, so, that type of mentality, I think, is, is something that we're still missing. Whether it's Christian Pulisic yeah. or otherwise, we need that almost, you know, the uh, it's, it's, not a, it's a level of selfishness, but it's still just like a... I don't know, man. It's 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 a belief beyond uh, any doubt, I guess. Okay, so so there's a comment from Matthew. It's a good comment. It's great. I agree. He says clinical, five thousand question marks. <laughs> mm -hmm. We don't create enough chances, and 
and yes, I agree. There, there's there's a component of our transition from the middle third to the attacking third where we struggle to really impose ourselves at times. Mm-hmm. I also think that teams are doing a better job of scouting us. That before, you know, maybe there was just like, these guys are just hard workers. You know, just got to match their energy and you probably should be fine. Our quality, we'll, we'll see it's through. I bet you that was a lot of the scouting reports back in the day. But now... Things are be becoming more sophisticated. And and so, yes, we're not creating as many chances. My counter to that, though, overall, is Morocco. Morocco had a, you know, a Nezri, he scores an absolute slam dunk at the back post against Portugal. Man, like I can but, but he only, that's his only his second goal of the whole tournament, was pretty non-existent. I think if he played for us, we'd be pissed that he's not doing more than he, you know. And, yeah. and, and but they were... They didn't had chances, chances, by the way. He had chances and didn't finish them. Um, True, but I don't feel on. like Morocco created. When you look at the stats, whatever you think about yeah. the stats, but when you look at the stats, yeah. Morocco didn't create a lot of chances. Right. But they were efficient. They were clinical when those chances were there, and we weren't. And that's what changes games, and that's why they got to a semifinal. And they're actually very good against France. All of a sudden, when they had some urgency and they were down for the first time all tournament, you're like, where was this version of Morocco? These guys are awesome bombing forward you know, like, hey, i mean playing with like second string guys all over the place because everybody was hurt and they're still imposing themselves on the game and so if we could get walid Regragui, their manager to coach the u.s i, I would be like all i'd be all for that because i just think he's, yeah. he's on top of it but he also knows his players and he also I, knows what it means to represent playing for your country as and that that's a little something different Go ahead. Hey, as, as a year in review since we're on it and and charlie charlie's actually had some good points in the comments he's trying to he's trying to turn the comment section against us as usual um yeah, monitoring Jeff, the freaking hall monitor over there charlie he's Davies. he's uh, uh he's the no fun yeah. police yeah i'm telling people to get back to <laughs> get back to class uh <laughs> asking where their hall pass is uh get the most out of each position you need to be flexible tactically i i actually really really do there there needs to be that fluidity i mean a lot of that's on the manager and then a lot of that's also on the players it takes a lot from every player to just try to if you have 11 players trying to figure it out in real time that's that's you know a lot of trouble but you know subtle changes i think makes makes a lot of sense um but but on that jimmy do you think where we're at where, things now looking back at last year heading into next year do you think that the change in manager of the national team is more in Greg's hands or is it more in the Federation's hands right now? I'd, Where do you I'd say it's more. The, the, I would say it's more in the Federation's hands right now. And okay. I think Greg, I don't think Greg's stock will be as high as it is right now. Cause if he tries to stick it out and it doesn't go well, or, or it's just kind of flat, maybe he's hit a ceiling with the team. Mm-hmm. It's just not going to have the same vibe, but he right now is a manager that got us qualified, got us out of the group, played some played and, and, Looked, you know, had good formations, good ideas, obviously in game management, something else. But but I don't think his stock's going to be any higher than it is right now. So if he wants to make a move, if he wants to coach or get a big giant contract in MLS, or if he wants to go over to Europe or whatever he wants to do, this would this is for me the time for him to do it. Because I don't think uh, it, it's, it, yeah. I don't think this is this peak. That's Going right. to, obviously there's a lot of ego and pride involved for anybody that takes over the 26 job because having, being in charge of the US team, when we're hosting the tournament, it's going to be a pretty big deal. Mm-hmm. And so, yeah, I, I, I'd like to think that U.S. soccer, and I hope that they are, are taking a look at what the other options are and talking to people. Like, go just go have a conversation. It doesn't have to be a formal interview. Go talk to Roberto Martinez. What would you do mm-hmm. with our team? You see what our team, what we're capable of, what could you do to level it up? And I wonder, hearing those ideas compared to what they're hearing from Greg and knowing what Greg can provide and do, what's more attractive to U.S. soccer? I think it's in U.S. soccer's hands. What do you think? Yeah, I agree. I think I think I think Ernie Stewart 
and that crew, one, probably entered a new category um, in this tournament out of just respect to the players, uh, the, the respect the players earned in the tournament in terms of like, okay, this is actually the youngest squad of the tournament, and we've got this much talent and this much potential, and we've got this pipeline of players. I think there's a realization in that this isn't just like the usual, like, this national team's athletic, you know, they fight hard, <laughs> like that type of thing. I think we're entering a category where it's no longer just like, oh, yeah, I've heard of Christian Pulisic, the Chelsea kid, and, you know, one other player. You're talking about a team of borderline stars now coming through. So I think you probably accidentally entered into a new category of, who would be interested and that's probably caused a little bit of chaos internally in a way that usually when we see these rosters of people throwing out like here's 10 names for the national team you're like yeah okay whatever Zidane's not interested but I actually believe now if you're Roberto Martinez who failed at the World Cup or if you're a Zidane or you're another top manager that's available or looking to be at the national team level it's probably a pretty interesting project for you um, where it's at how far it's come um, and where things stand. I actually think there's probably less American managers that are well uh, qualified or somewhat qualified that would be interested knowing the parameters of it, that it's probably a foreign manager that, that, that would be crazy enough to take this job or be interested in this. That's, that's where I think, but I do think it's in, it's in the Federation's hands and they're probably stuck in a whirlwind of the time of year. And the fact that like now all of a sudden a I, job that they thought had three applications have like 30 yeah. and you know, 20 of them are like, wow. You know? Yeah, I mean, I know that there's going to be some urgency because we have a January camp coming up, you know, and you have friendlies attached to that. But the first real official games aren't until March for the Nations League. So there's really no rush. And I don't want them to feel any... I don't want them to rush into this decision. This is a big decision. And I want to make sure that we get this one right. Now, let's just kind of continue the the in terms of the year in review. The biggest takeaways. I'm going to finish my takeaways for everybody, and they're going to kind of tie into also the like regrets, you know. And and so I think another big takeaway for me is we got to find a number nine. And if we don't have a number nine, we got to figure out or create a system where we can thrive without one. Japan didn't have a number nine; they thrived without it. Croatia didn't have a number nine; they thrived without it. Just to name a few. And and so, yeah, we still got to the round of sixteen, just like Japan, without a number nine. But but there has to be something in place where we can create more chances, where we can be more dynamic. I saw a comment from somebody saying we don't really have an attacking midfield because MMA are very good at what they do, but we don't have that, that one player to unlock. That's going to get into my regrets in a second. So we need to find a number nine. And we, if we don't have that, I assume there's going to be some in the pipeline that are coming through. That, that We have names, of course, but, but still young unproven in some ways. we got to figure out if they're going to be able to fit and develop. I think that we're going to have to have a center back evolution. I think that Reem demonstrated that an experienced hand at the back, no matter how old, is incredibly valuable, which means you can't rule out Zimmerman for and others for the next cycle. But I think we still need to keep this position churning out the talent. You have Richards. Uh, you have Miles Robinson, CCV. He's only 24, even though he looks like he's 30 years old. Mark McKenzie, Eric Palmer Brown. We don't know who's going to blow up and really start to mm -hmm. be this next version of themselves. From these players, you have Brandon Craig, who plays for Philadelphia Union. He can play as a holding midfielder, as a center back. He's part of the U20s that won the CONCACAF. You got uh, Josh Winder, who captains our 19s, plays for Louisville, only 17. Taylor just Booth. A Taylor Booth. I mean, there's so many players. Another though, another thing that, like, take away, let's just kind of mix yeah. this together. Take away, regrets, losses. The depth of MMA, like, what happens when MMA goes out? If one of them gets hurt, who are we replacing that player with if we want to keep that type of 
midfield together, that style of midfield together. Because I think you and I, in terms of regrets, Heath, and we talked about this with Charlie as well, is that we didn't take advantage of those June games. We had four of them. Two of them were Nations League and two of them were friendlies where we didn't actually try playing a false nine. We did a little bit against, well, I guess Ferreira was playing against Morocco. But, but we had Aronson in the middle of midfield that one. I guess that's what I'm thinking about. But we didn't try team away at the number nine. And then all of a sudden, we find ourselves in the round of 16 against Netherlands and we're down. And our number nine isn't firing up top. Who are we going to put up there? And we go elect to put Gio Reyna up top. And that pisses me off because we had plenty of opportunities. I know that you said with qualifying you, I don't want to tinker with that. We just got to qualify. I get that. But when we do have some friendlies, that's a big regret for me that we ultimately went to that when we were desperate without ever trying it in at least a friendly. And that pisses me off. So, so I have some regrets with that, not using that, not trying the false nine. I already mentioned Weston Smith against England because if we'd won the group playing Senegal, I think we would have got to the quarters. Uh, the midfield depth thing is, is interesting for me. I do think that there's... So here's another... One more thing, Heath. I'm going to add to this and everybody else can chime in, including yourself. The fact that we're so reliant on MMA. Listen, I love those guys and I think they're fantastic. But it makes me fear that we might not allow other younger players a chance to break in because they're always going to be playing. And, you know, there's going to be some friendlies where some per- players are going to come in. But it's like, once they establish themselves, as they have, are you going to risk not or pulling one out? Like, what is that going to do? I, that's, that's, we're like getting way ahead of ourselves. But I still think that that could limit, like when Michael Bradley was playing every single game, that limited other, op- other people from getting minutes to play, or at least to see if they could provide something to the team as well. I'm using him as an example, but I don't know. Go ahead. Whew. Oh boy. Yeah, Jimmy. I just talked for like two minutes straight. I love it. Welcome Seriously. to the Jimmy Conrad show. Yeah. And Jimmy, wow. we trust. Um, I don't know. Do, do, do we do we need to take a break today? Are we are we doing a a, a break? We're going we straight gonna, through. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> you want to do a break? We can do a break. Uh, should we do a break and then we'll, Let's you do know, a break. Come back All right, everybody, listen, okay. we're gonna take our first and only break of in soccer we trust because Heath doesn't know what to say. And when he comes <laughs> back, hopefully he'll find the words. So don't go anywhere. Hey, everyone, this is Jimmy Conrad, your favorite former U.S. men's national team player and the host of the Call It What You Want podcast. And I'm here to tell you that Viore is a versatile clothing brand that speaks my language. It's inspired from the coastal California lifestyle, just like me. Its products stand the test of time, just like me. And also, just like me, it endeavors to inspire others to live vibrant, healthy lives. Viore gear is designed to look great in everyday life while also being perfect for any workout activity. I'm currently rocking the men's Sunday performance jogger, And don't let the name deceive you. You can wear these babies any day of the week and in any situation. I'm talking going to the office, running errands, the gym, whatever your heart desires, because Viore is an investment in your happiness. For our listeners, they are offering 20% off your first purchase. So get yourself some of the most comfortable and versatile clothing on the planet at viore.com slash sports. That's V-U-O-R-I dot com slash sports. Not only will you receive 20% off your first purchase, but enjoy free shipping on any U.S. orders over $75 and free returns. Again, go to viore.com sports and discover the versatility of Viore clothing. Robert Half Research indicates 9 out of 10 hiring managers are having difficulty hiring. If you have open roles, chances are you're feeling this too. That's why you need Robert Half. Our specialized recruiting professionals engage with our proprietary AI to connect businesses of all sizes with highly skilled talent in finance and accounting, technology, marketing and creative, legal, and administrative and customer support. At Robert Half, we know talent. Visit roberthalf.com today. Welcome back, everybody, to In Soccer We Trust. Make sure you support the show. 
and use the QR code in the top right corner of your screen or the link in the episode description to visit the In Soccer We Trust store. And because we're feeling generous, use the code SOCCER20 at checkout to get 20% off your entire order. We got t-shirts, we got hoodies, we got hats, we got pint glasses, we got mugs, we got bags, and we have about eight ha- home addresses of Chuck, so you guys can go visit him at any time. Visit the In Soccer We Trust store now and use code SOCCER20 for 20% discount also i want to make sure that all these players that we're talking about like pulisic reina desk you can see them in the champions league exclusively on paramount plus so make sure you scan the qr code to get a 50 percent discount using offer code all year we got we got codes we got all kinds of stuff we're in the spirit of giving because it's the holidays we hope everybody is doing well and now i think heath pierce is ready to talk what's oh, up yeah, brother, hey, brother. <laughs> uh, thanks for having me back man i appreciate it i'm, I'm like stanley <laughs> in the comments stanley's like can you guys wait for me i'm going to the bathroom really quick i was trying to get to a break so i could go fill up my water because i was really thirsty but then i saw our, our producer for those of you that are watching it uh live uh roll the short uh champions league um uh um little snippet as opposed to the longer ones i didn't have time to fill up my water and now i'm th- still thirsty <laughs> with the same same kind of problem so um but yeah, Jimmy, I'm look, um, you know, uh, another coming from Kai of Kai 718 that we need three or four players to come out of nowhere. I think interestingly, we no longer need players to come out of nowhere uh, because if you're watching at the U17, U20 level, U18s, if you're following MLS Next, MLS Next Pro, we've got a pipeline of players. We've got a pipeline of 15, 16 year olds that might be in a World Cup. Those players might come out of nowhere, but generally, we could phase out half of the 26 players that made this World Cup and phase in the next generation by 2026, and you wouldn't know anything was missing, and they'd be, again, at this super, super young age. Some of them even, even further along. And so I am, I am excited about the competition of pushing players on. I think we're entering a category where I'm hoping uh, national team caps will be harder to come by, that uh, you'll have some of these players playing at such a high level that, you know, you look at um, – uh, Emmerich Laporte, uh, for example, uh, ended up playing for for Spain, but wasn't getting caps with France um, previously. Like this is a guy that was at Manchester City, right? The teams are so deep. When you look at uh, Brazil, three three twenty six roster deeps of players that could play in a World Cup. I think we're not, not quite there, but we're entering in a category now. We're entering to a point where I'm hoping that you're going to start to see mainstays in the national team. Um, while there's big players behind them, as opposed to not having any competition, right? Um, mm-hmm, and, mm-hmm. and I think that, that excites me uh, for the future. But I agree with you in terms of not having a nine. If we don't have a nine, then we need to play a different system. We can't, we can't try to play the way that we ideally want to play someday if we don't have the players to be able to execute against that type of system, right? We, Charlie and, 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 and Josie Altidore together uh, was a system that we used because – I don't think Josie could have been a great number nine by himself when he had another, when he had a nine next to him or, or another striker next to him, it brought out their best qualities and it made us better. Right. But what that Mm -hmm. meant was you lose a player out of the midfield. And we talked about this before of, well, why don't we play with the back three or back five? Well, the reality is, is you're actually adding more to your defense. um, And maybe you can go three, four, three, or you can go three uh, or five, three, two to add another striker up top. But you're taking out where we considered ourselves best, which was a midfielder or a, or attacking player with a front three to make a front two uh, to add another player in the back, if that makes sense. And so mm-hmm, mm-hmm. tactically, it doesn't it doesn't always align with where we're at, other than the fact of maybe playing a different player at the number nine or playing with a two striker system. But then again, that would make you have to change uh, something from MMA. That would make you have to think differently about playing 
in a 4-3-3 or, or a 4-2-3-1, however you want to look at it, where you have isolated wingers and you have a single striker up top. And that would be considerably different than where we're at now because uh, and I know we had some hybrids to that. And I think we were moving towards that, actually, as the tournament went, went along with where Timo Weah was setting up in our, in our, in our buildup or in our transition game. Um, coming from the wing inside and being more connected to the striker. But uh, if you don't have the player, you can't play. The, if, if it's a player-based system and you don't have the players, you can't play in that system, I guess is what I'm getting at, which is a little bit disappointing. And hopefully we have somebody, because I think we have a pool of strikers that could could rise. Maybe, again, I'm still bullish on Ricardo Pepe being the highest upside same, of same. that pool of players. Um, but I'm hoping that there's a few coming up soon um, that, can, that can challenge or, or, or be competitive at that spot as well. Yeah, I think uh, Kevin Paredes, I know he's not a nine, but he's somebody that excites me in the future. Paxton Aronson, obviously another Aronson. Um, I mean, Kevin, uh, Kevin Paredes could be a wingback for us. Right? I know, that's... Be, that's and, and very, very which, good. Which we need. I think we need that that depth in that position so that it's not all Jedi the whole time. But um, yeah, it's interesting. You got Mihailovic. I'm curious to see how he's going to do when he heads over to Holland. Brian Gutierrez, Alex Dejas, uh, Malik Tillman, still in there, I think. Vasquez, what does he do? Balogun. When Sullivan, I mean, we have there's 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 plenty of players, but I know that Kai, we've mentioned him a few times. We appreciate his support. How how many of them are going to take that next step and really start to push out the guys that are already in front of them? And I think that's going to be. But I am bullish on Ricardo Pepe as well. I'm kind of curious about his relationship with Greg moving forward. If Greg stays and how they work through that, obviously they got to be very professional. But I could assume, or I would be at least, if I was Ricardo Pepe, kind of pissed at Greg Berhalter. And then you do know, have other players in midfields. You know, will Brendan ever drop into? More of a midfield spot. Gio's the same. You got Cardoso, Cruz Medina, who's comes from the San Francisco Glens, where I helped coach. You know, now he's signed with the Quakes. Oh, Jimmy's taking credit. Look at that. Just what I'm, do you I'm know? Just saying, you know? I'm just saying. I'm just saying where he came from. I'm just he came from the Glens, where I'm helping out, and Cruz Medina's there. Uh, Pedro Soma's another one. You know, we got a lot. Of Taylor Booth, as you mentioned, Mendez, Jack McGlynn, uh, Ledesma, Alvarado. Yeah, Busio, you got De La Torre, Tessman, I mean, uh, Obed Vargas, Aiden Morris. I mean, there's so many players. It's just a matter well, that, of, are they going to do enough? Those are pros, to, right? Those they, are pros, they, by the way. Which is very then, cool. Yeah, we've yeah. got 16, 16 to 18-year-olds that haven't turned pro yet that you don't know about because they're, and a lot of us don't know about because they haven't rounded that corner yet to being like on, on the radar uh, in the way that like even Paxton Aronson was. Like, at least he, he shined in the 20s. He got some games last year, less so this year, um, and now he's making a move because he sort of maximized his upside at a club and needs to go where he can develop. There's going to be a lot more Pax and Aronsons um, along the way uh, that that I think are go go far beyond the list that you just named mm-hmm. the players that we we know because they're sort of they're sort of tinkering on the bubble of the pool of the national team already. Yeah. I think what's exciting. I think this is what I'm going to finish with with regard to my year in review, and then I want to have a bigger conversation about the format for 26 because I walked into 48 teams and us hosting like, Oh, we're going to get, we're going to have our deep best run ever, you know? Uh, and, and I, I still feel that way, but just to kind of put a capper on this year in review, I think the future is incredibly bright. And, and maybe that's naive of me to say, we still had some lessons to, to learn when we had faced the Netherlands, but I still feel like the way that we played in the world cup, which is what we should be judged on ultimately the way that we qualified, we, 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 I guess what we were worried about, Heath, when we started this U.S. Men's National Team Hour was, does this team have the backbone? You know, do they have some of the, the hallmarks of the previous generations where they're re- ready to scrap and fight and do whatever they need? And I think they, they demonstrated that. 
we saw in the Nations League. I remember at the Nations League final, we thought, all right, this team's got a little something to them. And then that other team came in for the Gold Cup. And we're like, all right, this this uh, next wave of guys, the second uh, pool of players, not all the first teamers. They have a little bit of that too. And we combine that. We're going to be a force to be reckoned with. That we maybe weren't as aesthetically pleasing as we'd like through qualifying, but we got the job done. Then we go in and we we have a couple of good friendlies. I thought the Morocco friendly was excellent. That's what got that coach fired and ultimately, I think, put them on their course to have their great run when they brought in a different manager who really pushed all the right buttons. And then, you know, we I thought we took a step back with Japan and Saudi Arabia and I maybe that sharpened us up and ready to go from at least from a coaching perspective. We go in and as you ma- mentioned before, I think this is a great way, we manage the group. And I like that because we weren't necessarily having to rely on others to get through to the next round. We were relying on ourselves and we did the job. And then uh, for for a portion of that Netherlands game, there's some things that I'm happy with, but ultimately we just got outclassed. And that's something for us to build on. But ultimately, I think the future is bright. And when I think about the players that were playing and how young they were and how much this experience is going to help them grow and be ready for the next one, there's not going to be any surprises next time. The only thing that's different is that we're going to be at home and they're going to have their home fans. And I think Greg's record playing at home is pretty remarkable. So I think our guys just like playing in front of home fans. And I think that is to our advantage. But that would be my big takeaway. The future's bright. The the what I also like is all these players that we're mentioning. Okay, maybe they're not there yet, but they are going to be pushing these guys to continue to be sharp, and that's just going to make being a part of the national team even that more competitive. So I'm curious to see what U.S. Soccer does moving forward in terms of the manager position, and obviously that the ripple effects that's going to have. But that's going to give us plenty to talk about here. So make sure you follow us and and hit like and subscribe and. Follow us on Twitter as well, Pod. Give us five-star reviews. We appreciate all that good stuff. But that's my big final takeaway. How about you, Heath? Yeah, I mean, I, I would, I would uh, uh, agree with that. I, I do think the future is bright. I think, I think we are right to be critical of Greg Berhalter right now. We're right to be critical of the players and the way that we crapped out of the tournament. Uh, and the way that those players play at their clubs versus in our national team, which, you know, is always harder than than, than playing in a club. And Christian Pulisic talks about that again, uh, the amount of time you spend in a club where you're constantly working on things versus in a national team where you're trying to build a culture and a system and a winning mentality and all those things all at once in a very short period is is much more difficult. And 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 so and 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 you know also, Jimmy, that sometimes you played on club teams that just gelled. Right. And mm-hmm. others needed a lot of work to gel. Um, or couldn't right. even gel after a lot of work, right? And you have bad seasons and you have good seasons. Sometimes it all just comes together with personalities and things like that. Um, and so my biggest thing, my, 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 my takeaway from this is that, yeah, the future is very, very bright. Uh, I think the pipeline um, is, is really strong of players. I think, uh, we're, I think that we are moving forward. I think we move forward in this World Cup uh, because if you had asked me when we failed out in 2018, we took all these young players, um, to this whole World Cup, if we got to this point and lost the way that we did, I'd be disappointed, but I'd still be happy uh, mm-hmm, at how mm-hmm. far this team had to come to get there, right? Regardless of the fact that, you know, by the time the World Cup came, we had, you know, eight starters that play Champions League. Um, and so, yeah, that's 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 my thoughts there. Okay. Well, putting a bow on that, let's now kind of focus on 2026 because mm-hmm. for those that don't know, there are going to be 48 teams participating. That's a move from 32 which has been in place since 1998. That's a 50% increase in terms of the teams. And I think of any country or countries, we're probably best positioned alongside Canada and Mexico to host a tournament of this magnitude. Now, just to give everybody more context, the US, Mexico, and Canada will automatically qualify, as Heath mentioned, because of the hosts. There's 45 spots open. Now, Asia, each region, 
Asia had four spots going into this. Now they have an extra. So they have eight total. Africa, who deserve this already, but are now getting it, now have nine total. They're going to get four extra spots. Uh, CONCACAF, which is us, gets three extra, but three already determined with us, all the hosts. Europe has currently 13, which is a lot, and they're getting three more. And then you have South America is getting plus two. And then you have um, Oceana is getting one extra. So, so if we took this current World Cup that we just had and added 16 teams to it, giving this, this new wave and based on how they qualified, you'd had, you would have added Algeria, Congo, Egypt, Mali, and Nigeria from Africa. Those are really good teams, man. From Asia, you would have added uh, Iraq and UAE. Um, Jamaica and Panama from CONCACAF. North Macedonia, but let's be honest, probably would have been Italy. Um, Sweden, Ukraine. New Zealand gets in automatically. Then you would have added Chile, Colombia, and Peru. So when I think about all those teams you're adding, Keith, those are like those are good teams, man. And yeah, and but I, I mean, cause people problems. Maybe not UAE and Iraq, you know. Yeah, but, but when I when I think about Panama, Jamaica, when I think about okay, Egypt, yes, but when I think about Congo, um, when I think about UAE, um, I, I, like I start to, I, I do start to see a second tier uh, no there is now of course. don't get me wrong like uae was uh, was in a playoff of a playoff to get to a world cup and and panama was on that uh was set to make the playoff game for the world cup after you know being in strong position until costa rica went on this run and costa rica uh showed glimpses of, of for for an aging team their ability to compete in a world cup they did not look mm-hmm. out of place uh until you know their their opportunity to 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 do something against germany and and then fell apart but there wasn't a team and i'm thinking back uh to this tournament you know cuz I, I i look at the women's world cup and i go okay remember the 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 thailand um us women's game where it was 13-0 mm-hmm. and mm-hmm. just the discrepancies there and the necessity to add more teams to bring more funding and i think about some of the comments that I read recently about just sort of the the um, built-in classism and racism of the World Cup in general that is just con- continuously feeding money to the same federations over and over and over again and missing out on the opportunity of developing nations who could actually use the funding. It's the chicken or the egg of like, well, mm-hmm. if they could get in, they could get the funding. If they could get the funding, they could improve. If they could improve, then they could be a competitive team. But you're just boxing them out in every sort of way. So on that hand, I agree we should have more teams qualify for the World Cup, more funding going to these these nations that will only improve, um, again, whether that would be the U.S. Uh, or, or Jamaica or, or, or mm-hmm. Panama or African nations, Asian nations, or European nations, right? That funding can be really significant for any developing football nation. So I think the growth of that is, is really, really strong. Where I start to worry, though, uh, is is in the the actual uh, build of the 48 teams, right? Where and maybe it's been updated since then, and if that was today or something. But like whether they're going to no, go hasn't. with three team groups, and the fact that you can't because of three teams, you can't play the final games at the same time, which means that the final game of when that plays in a three team group, one will have already been played, so the final game can create a lot of chaos in terms of like handshake and, agreements and collusion. to go through. Yeah. Um, right. Collusion is, is, is a better way of putting it and, and all of those types of things. And then my follow-up to that, Jimmy, is do you think FIFA sees this, right? They see Croatia go on a run again. They see Morocco. They see the highs and lows. They see the beauty of an Australia team doing what they did in the tournament, the U.S. getting out of, uh, out of, out of their group. Um, 
you know, uh, Croatia, Morocco out of their group, uh, Giants going home. Do you think that they go, man, we really messed up? I mean, financially they don't, right? Because they know that's more matches, more stadiums, more revenue. Right, right. It's, they're going to all get filthy, filthy rich off of this. But from an actual quality control standpoint, do you think they go, man, we really messed up opening this up because I think the world of football at the international level, at the national team level is changing now. And you're starting to see things get perhaps a little bit closer. And now we potentially dilute that product by opening it up more. Or they're saying, well, now the world's coming more together. So let's increase the teams because obviously the, the competitive nature. I mean, I know which way yeah. they lean from like a, a you know, of kind of like money ball standpoint. But like, um, I, I'm just curious if there's a, it, it, how they left this World Cup thinking about adding um, 16 more teams. Or yeah. My guess is that the Croatia Morocco just inspires them. Well, this is why we opened it up. We get the smaller nations, quote unquote, smaller nations, even though Croatia has done excellent anytime they've gotten into the knockout rounds and Morocco, when given the opportunity, can compete with with anybody. Mm -hmm. So now you're opening that up to more storylines of that nature, which I think is pretty cool. Like, if a, you know, you get Sweden in, I mean, I assume maybe a Norway with Erling Holland, who scored today for Man City because the guy's an absolute beast. But, but, you know, you get a Norway in, and, and now you start to get these other storylines that probably wouldn't happen otherwise. I mean, it still mm -hmm. feels like a shame that there are some players in their lives that never got to play in a World Cup, even though they were world-class players. And, and so this is like going to give them... yeah. Like, definitely my, yourself. My story. Stupid, stupid <laughs> Johnny story. Bornstein. But, uh, <laughs> but um, you know, I think they probably see it as a good thing. My concern for them is, okay, the U.S., Mexico, and Canada can host... Uh, a tournament of this magnitude with this many teams. But when Saudi Arabia is going to try to manage this by themselves, 48 nations in 2030, because they're pushing hard for it. Are you, sh are you, that's insane, dude. That I mean for yeah. one country to manage that and the infrastructure that's going to take is pretty significant. Now I also heard that what Spain, Portugal, and Morocco might be co-sharing. I know that they threw yeah. Ukraine in there uh, as a, as a gesture. And yeah, I appreciate Mor the gesture, but I think, but Morocco's right there, right? They're right across the Mediterranean. So you mm -hmm. have, that's a possibility where I think, okay, those three countries together could probably figure out a way to make it work. But still, even then it, it, it just feels like it's adding layers of complication. That said, I definitely think Africa deserved four more nations. They needed more mm -hmm. spots. It's felt uh, in incredibly unfair that they didn't get more opportunities and then you, I, I like that, uh, you know, you could have had a Colombia, Chile. I mean, just more South American teams is awesome. Uh, getting yeah. a guaranteed spot to the Oceania region, yeah. getting more teams. I, so, so ultimately, I'm kind of a... Yeah, 48 maybe, teams makes sense. It it's just cool, whether man. you it's, can... It's you, cool. Yeah, it's, it's the format, I think. And then, it's, and then it's, you know, uniquely, I mean, again, even when you think about it, you had mentioned, what were the African nations that would have if, if this was 48? So this time? Mali, Nigeria... Yeah. Congo and Egypt. Egypt. Yeah. And but then uh, if you go beyond one. that, but, but you know, like you're even, talking you can, about you're you talking Ivory about Coast. Ivory Coast. You're yeah. talking about uh Algeria. You're mm -hmm. talking Algeria, about yeah. like you're talking about some serious hitters, you know, and and some historic hitters that are competitive in their um in the AFCON um that are competitive, yes. you know, and at, at at high levels that teams that play in the Asia Cup um or any of the Asian regions that are North African that are that are really powerful, like or Arab Cups and things like that. There's a lot of quality teams um, out there that that even when Morocco were there, I was still surprised because I remember watching Egypt and I remember watching Algeria la this time last year. Um, and I was like really impressed at just the style of play um, that that they had and the, and the quality of player that they had. So yeah, I think 48, again, the, the, the issue then becomes infrastructure. Can you handle 
that much movement. And and so, I know you and I haven't had a chance to really. We you spent uh, over you know forty days at a at a at a World Cup um, city because it was really only one city one with city, some, yeah. I mean one larger city with suburbs and things like that. But uh, by and large, one city. Um, and and I spent some time there as well. And I think we should reflect on that soon of just like what that was like versus what 48 teams will be and what your overall yeah. takeaways were and things like that because i i've got a lot of thoughts and opinions on that but 48 well, i guess we'll, we'll take we, this we, into consideration yeah. before we before we finish it up and we send everybody on their way with 48 teams i don't think to your point because of the collusion i don't think they can do 16 groups of three anymore i think we talked mm-hmm. about this already so yeah. you're going to go to 12 game 12 groups of four and i i just think what what is interesting is then you're going to have two top teams, which is 24, but you need to get to 32. So you're going to have the eight best third place teams. So you're at 32. And then now you're adding, you're basically adding a game. So if it was 16 groups of three, you had 80. So right now it's 64 games. And it takes seven, in the individual, 64 games in total, seven games to win the whole thing. So Argentina played, France played seven games. Now, if you, with 16 groups of three, still seven games. But you just start your knockout rounds a little bit earlier. You have a round of 32, then 16, and it's very March mm-hmm. Madness-esque, right? But but that's 80 games total, but still seven individually. If you go to 12 groups of four, you have to play eight games to win it all. You're going to have to extend the tournament from probably 32 days to maybe 35 or 36. Mm-hmm. You're going to go from 80 games to 104. And, and now you start to wonder, I mean, they love it. TV's going to love it. Mm-hmm. Right, there's more money to be made. The stadiums, the infrastructure is already there. More so to sell, that's, yeah. That's just there. a lot. That's just you're extending that. You're you're pushing. There's an overflow of World Cup. Now, listen, this World Cup was amazing, and if it matches that, I yeah. think everybody will be like, all right, whatever, who cares? But but you also have to take into consideration that it's bumping up against a very decorate or very difficult club season, right? Where these guys are playing 50, 60 games a year. So it's it's uh, it's interesting. Um, yeah, it's more or it's more for me is like, I think when you go that big and that large at scale, then everything starts to become much more targeted, right? Which means you will start, uh, I think you'll start to see matches put in cities based on the ability to fill stadiums, right? And I'm talking about US, Mexico and Canada. You could take 48 teams. And if you were to just remove it and say, hey, we're going to play based on the draw, we're going to put, we, we know where we're going to put Mexico. We know we're right. going to put the U.S. We know we're going to put the Netherlands based on where their uh, the, the, the Dutch um, immigrant population is or, or fans are. We know where we're going to put these types of games. If you targeted all that, you could sell out every single game from a 48-team tournament. And I, I think in, in Canada, U.S., and Mexico. But when you, once you go beyond that, I don't know if, if you can hold up 48 teams. If you go outside of... Man... And I'm not talking about the U.S. generally just in terms of infrastructure because there's plenty yeah. of countries around the world that could co-bid and have plenty of infrastructure. I think that exists um, easily in a lot of places. It's more so the ability to create an entertaining product at 48 teams across the board in all these stadiums, like you said, for 40, 50 days of a, of a tournament. Can you sustain that energy? Can you sustain that in-stadium experience? Because we just saw 32 teams in Qatar, and I saw a lot of empty seats along the way. I saw a lot of seat fillers coming in in the 30th minutes of mm-hmm, things. Mm-hmm. I saw a lot of those kinds of things, which doesn't deter from the overall product uh, when you're experiencing it in the stadium or if you're watching it on TV, you probably don't notice it. But when you're talking about that um, over 
one and a half that time and increasing the amount of teams and therefore increasing or decreasing the interest based on a local fan. Um, it's going to be tough, but exciting times nonetheless. I mean, growth or or, or change is always good in my book on some level. Yeah, we're going to have to wait and see. It's more of a kind of a wait and see. Um, I'm not really worried about the infrastructure in this particular instance because it's been well documented that we we have all that um, and so do our partners. Uh, Calvin has an interesting suggestion, though, that if you win your group, then you get an automatic buy. And then I'm trying to think how that would work. It's almost like... Because you'd the Europa League has something similar where... If you drop down from the Champions League, whoever got second in your Europa League group has to play the third place team from the Champions League who dropped down. It's almost like they have two round of 16s, right? Yeah. They do the first one and then they have the next one with the, well, there's not 16 group winners there, right? Is there only eight? Yeah, I think there's only well, you, eight. So that, it kind of sets yeah. up nice. But, well, but we don't be, have, there the, might the be setup doesn't of... nice. But I, I like that, 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 yeah, I could see the first round by. I don't know if I'd want one, to be honest. I feel like when you've, when you get a buy, it just slows down your rhythm in some ways, but that's yeah. a different conversation. I will say, though, that uh, if you were to ask the teams that went on these deep runs after a, this type of tournament and this level of heat, which wasn't unreasonable um, compared to heat elsewhere in the world uh, during summers when you get into to the late Julys and August, but um, there were some teams that were tired. Lack of player right, rotation, right. lack of whatever, right. you know, running on, on fumes of their style of play that maybe a buy would probably – help at some point in the tournament, but it obviously throws off momentum. Um, that's the trade-off, but I think getting some extra rest uh, is probably helpful for the teams that true, don't have true. the ability to rotate, you know? Well, Heath, I appreciate you, everybody watching and listening. We appreciate you as well. We're going to call it a show here in Soccer We Trust is done. We appreciate you hanging out with us for your year-end review. We're trying to review all of you guys. Let's make sure. Come to our office. We're going to sit down and make sure you're ticking all the boxes and doing all the good stuff. Make sure you drop us a follow at ISWT Pod on Twitter. Let us know your thoughts about your review for the U.S. Men's National Team in particular for 2022. We'd love to see those and then read those. Then we can talk about it in a future show. I want to say on behalf of me, Heath, and Charlie, we really appreciate what Des and Alex are doing behind the scenes as a producer. Anytime Lisa Roman comes in as well. Amazing people that are making our jobs incredibly easy. We just want to give them a shout out. We appreciate everybody and all your support. You guys are absolutely beautiful people, and we cannot wait for 2023 to go down. We can get into all the other stuff that's coming. And, of course, we're going to have a couple special mailbag episodes coming your way as well. So, all right. Have a great day. Appreciate you guys. Later.